This is Top Floor, episode 94. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 94. Welcome to Top Floor with Susan Berry. This weekly podcast ride up to the top floor features tangible tips and excellent stories from the experts and characters who elevate hospitality. And now your host and elevator operator, Susan Berry. I'm back with Stephanie Smith, CEO and digital matriarch of Cogwheel Marketing, learning more about Cogwheel Analytics, the business intelligence tool she developed for hotel management companies and ownership groups. I know, Stephanie, that our listeners have heard of BI tools like the Star Report. Can you explain what types of data Cogwheel Analytics provides? Cogwheel Analytics is designed to be a Star Report, but for your digital marketing. Since the dawn of time, all of our digital marketing data has been compared against the hotel's own data. If you want to look at the website revenue, you're comparing it to yourself year over year, month over month. But that data in and of itself is silos. How do we start looking at that data in a bigger way to make sense of what's good and what's bad and understand the true online story of that particular hotel? What types of data does Cogwheel Analytics provide? For any franchise or of multiple brands, someone that's working in digital marketing is aggregating data, copying, pasting, creating massive pivot tables from upwards of 20 different sources. Functionally, our reporting tool allows people to save time. So they're not doing that. They're spending time strategizing and action planning against the data instead of creating the report. We've mapped out data points for all the major brands so that you can see your channel mix, visit some revenue you get, be able to identify trends there, and also paid media, incorporating Cody data, Expedia data, Google data, so you can get a total online presence view of where your marketing dollars went and what the performance of all those different initiatives have been. How does having all of that information in one place help a company's commercial team? It allows for that real-time discussion. If you're sitting in a revenue strategy meeting, you have that data available at your fingertips to say, this is what's happening and this is what we should be doing to either correct that action or change or shift that strategy. Welcome to the show. Megan Grant took her first solo trip at 14 and she had visited more countries by the age of 20 than I have by the age of more than that. She has planned conferences for hundreds of thousands of people, opened restaurants, and worked in hotels, all of which led her to exactly where she belongs, an entrepreneurial career in travel. Megan is founder and memory creator at Cherish Tours, a travel company that creates adventurous vacations for women. As part of a collaboration between Cherish and Top Floor, I was lucky enough to get to go on a trip to Alaska that you will hear more about in episode 100. Today, Megan and I are going to talk about entrepreneurship, travel, and social impact. But before we jump in, we need to answer the call button. 
The emergency call button is our hotline for hospitality professionals and random strangers who have burning questions. If you would like to submit a question, you can call or text me at 850-404-9630. Today's question was submitted by Stacy. Here is what Stacy has to say. I have a solo trip coming up and I'm getting a lot of static from friends and family who think it's unsafe. What are some safety things that I can do or say to get them off my back? You are the perfect person to ask this question to, Megan. What do you think? Like, I don't even think Stacy is worried about her own safety. I think she just wants to shut some people up. What would you suggest? So that sounds all too familiar from my perspective. <laughs> um, I backpacked Europe for three months when I was only 22 years old. And that was probably the thing I heard most from my dad, especially. And then mostly friends of family, not even my immediate family. Because people who knew me well enough knew that my adventurous spirit was going to be able to handle it. But uh, other people were like, how the heck are you going to let your 22-year-old daughter gallivant around Europe and know that she's going to come home safe? Um, especially after that movie Taken came out, a oh, lot God. of people got <laughs> a lot of people got really terrified of women solo traveling in Europe. And really, I think that good for you, Stacy. Get out there, do it. If you've done your research and you feel confident, then that should reflect in the way that you talk about your trip and go. And honestly, they might not get off your back. You can just keep talking about it in a way that screams confidence and screams excitement. And they'll just have to eventually back off or get on board. So don't let their opinions sway you or make you too nervous. Just make sure you're doing your research and making sure that what you've chosen to do is safest for your experience. What I think is absolutely amazing is to think about the fact that people who are like my age and my parents' age did this with no cell phones. So Stacy's gonna be just fine. She'll have a cell phone. At worst, she'll have like a GPS locator inside that cell phone for her. She's got this. She's going to be okay. Everybody get off Stacy's back. <laughs> you have always worked in hospitality at hotels, restaurants, a food truck, the whole gamut. But most of your professional life before starting your company was spent as an event planner, which is one of the most stressful jobs in the world. Like I think they say... Alaskan crab fisher people and event planners are tied for the most stressed out people in the world. What were some of the things that you loved about that line of work? I would definitely rather be an event planner than an Alaskan crab fisher or <laughs> probably several other jobs that exist. Um, like bless the people who are taking my garbage away and like all of those types of jobs. So there's definitely more difficult jobs than event planner, but I appreciate it. Um, I was trying to think of what I really loved about event planning. And I kind of stumbled quite a bit, which is why I think I was trying to find my exit plan throughout my career in it. Uh, I just kept landing back in 
event planning and really I think what I loved about it was just how good I was at it. And I think from a young age, we're all taught to do something you're good at. And when I found that thing that I was good at, I figured that's where I was supposed to be and what I was supposed to be doing. And even though a lot of the other elements of event planning, the lack of interpersonal relationship and large-scale conference planning, the stress level all of the other things that are not as glamorous, I stayed because it, it it felt like a good place to be, to build a career, especially when it was a skill that I felt confident in. That's interesting. It reminds me of that saying, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Like you were really good at it. So you figured might as well, but maybe it wasn't exactly the right fit for you. Yeah, that's probably the most truth in it in being asked that question and reflecting back on it is that you weren't really presented a lot of opportunities as a young girl in school of what types of careers were actually out there. Uh, I personally was not taught all of the different options that there were in industries and all these different things. I just was told, go to college and figure it out. And so I landed in something that I knew. That's exactly the same for me. And honestly, one of the secret missions of this show is to sort of illuminate all of the different career paths you can take. I also think, and I've talked with some guests about this recently, most specifically Dr. Peter Ricci, um, about the idea that students who are in school right now, the jobs that they're going to have in 10 years don't exist yet. And that's a piece that I don't think my parents probably could have conceived of. I'm not sure about yours, but that, you know, change is moving at such a rapid pace that who knows what a job will be even five years from now, like much less, you know, there's more than just a doctor and a lawyer at this point. The pandemic put a stop to events and sort of forced you to do some deep thinking about what to do next. Do you think that you would have started a business eventually, no matter what? Like, had you been thinking about it? Or do you think that the pandemic revealed a part of yourself that you didn't know was in there? Like you were sort of pushed up against a wall and had to dig deep and find this entrepreneurial spirit? Is a correct answer both. Um, (laughs) Yeah, sure. (laughs) Because I think it's a little bit of both. I think I definitely would have started my own business eventually if I was given the time to find it. But the pandemic kind of sped that up for me, being forced out of my career and basically being shown the exit plan I had been working on prior to the pandemic. And so I think that the entrepreneurial part showed up as a result of the pandemic, but not necessarily because of. So my grandfather is an entrepreneur and my mom. So for me, I think it's pretty genetic that we are visionary people. And for me, I think my unique element that I bring to the entrepreneurial world is that I'm a a visionary that actually has practical applications, which is hard to find that mix sometimes. So 
I think it was more a combination of the fact that I didn't believe in myself to be an entrepreneur until the pandemic happened. And then I was forced to start looking at some of those things through the deep thinking that you mentioned and through working. I did work with a uh, life coach on my exit plan for out of my career. And he was definitely the one who helped me find the belief in myself to be an entrepreneur. Had you considered other careers working for other people as part of that exit plan too? Or was it always like the entrepreneurial highway? It was definitely leaning more towards finding a career working for someone else again. I kept trying to fit that round peg into a square hole where I was looking for careers that had this list of all of the things that I wanted to get out of my career, like more flexibility and time freedom and being able to be a visionary and have different ideas come to fruition. And there was a laundry list of things that I was hoping for in a career that I kept trying to fit into a more corporate mold and get into that jive again, working for someone else in a more uh, maybe unique industry like travel or different things like that. But my round peg was never fitting into that square hole, no matter how deep I dug. And my life coach was very, very patient with me because he knew from the beginning of when we started working together that I was going to be an entrepreneur. But he let me kind of have that journey for myself and do it through self-discovery instead of being like, you should be an entrepreneur and pushing that on me. That's really interesting. How did you arrive at the concept for Cherish Tours for your business? So that's definitely a really fun story. It's started with what I was talking about in having a life coach and a career coach, one in the same, and discovering that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I actually knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur before I knew what the concept for my business was going to be. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So once I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur, I kind of had to sit back and figure out like, what the hell do I even want to use those skills for. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's actually in her 60s. And she's just a beautiful woman who's really good at kind of turning the mirror around on you for some self-reflection. And it was during a conversation I was having with her that I just kind of spit out oh my gosh, if I could do anything in the world, I would be supporting women through travel and supporting women businesses. And she was like, Megan, you just said it. Why don't you do that? (laughs) And I was like, huh. She's like, write it down. And so I wrote down travel for women that supports women. And I still have that piece of paper that says travel for women that supports women. And One day I'll have it framed because that's where Cherish started. And once that came out of my mouth and I I really started thinking about it on a regular basis, I just put it into motion and haven't turned back since. 
So you create tours for women to go on. And as a part of that, you support women in the destinations where you tour. What I think is interesting, and I really learned something when you explained this to me, you make an intentional distinction between women-owned businesses and women in business. Can you talk about that and why it matters? Yeah, 100%. So women-owned business, just as it sounds, is women who own their own business. And I speak to women in business because there are millions of women around the world who do not own their own business, who are still economically supported by intentional spending and by being able to make selections that support people in local destinations. So Cherish does support both women-owned businesses and women in business. And I lead with women in business because our tours stay at locally owned family properties that might be women ran. Um, We also go to restaurants and storefronts and all these different things that might not be women owned, but are still operated or managed by women. And it's my belief that really women owned and women in business all deserve our support. And I just want to put that at the forefront for, for people who travel the world in making those decisions to look locally and start supporting on a more intentional level. I love that. Cherish launched in 2021, which some might say was a crazy time to start a travel business. What was your first tour? How did it go? Did it go? What happened? Yes. So... 2021 was definitely still very in the midst of a pandemic. It was crazy times for travel. And a lot of people in the hospitality industry were struggling. Our first tour was to Costa Rica in October of 2021. It was something that I did very intentionally and made sure that we went to a destination that was welcoming tourists and was open to it. And that's why I chose Costa Rica uh, as that first tour destination. They were also a country that relied very heavily on tourism. So they were struggling when the world shut down. So by bringing tourists back in October of 2021, really had a huge impact on a lot of the places that we were staying. For example, one of the hotels we stayed at, when they were shut down during the pandemic, the uh, the general manager of that property, her name is Jana. She was using the food from the property because it's on a farm to still feed and give food to bring home to the workers who worked there. And that was one way that she could support them, even though she wasn't able to pay them during the pandemic. So by us coming back when they had reopened, it allowed for people to work again and for her employees to start slowly coming back to the hotel. So there was definitely some hesitation from travelers to go on an international trip again, but we did everything we could to make people feel comfortable regardless of the pandemic. Uh, We 
Costa Rica doesn't have a vaccine requirement, but they do have a testing requirement. So we did testing both on the front end and the back end, and everything went really well. Um, the women who were brave enough to travel with us, we had eight women on our first tour, had a great time, and the community that was built together was super beautiful. And just being in Costa Rica is really special. And it, I think it's shown through even more so going right after some of the reopenings during the pandemic. This sounds like a good time to take a break. After this, Megan is going to talk about what still gets on her nerves about packing for trips. And she'll also share a unique experience she had in planning Cherish's upcoming tour in Panama. Be right back. I'm talking to Stephanie Smith from Cogwheel Marketing about Cogwheel Analytics, her company's new business intelligence tool. Can you give us a use case of how your customers are using Cogwheel Analytics right now? A lot of us in digital marketing, we look at our channel mix. How much revenue is coming in through our website? How much money is coming through the OTAs? How much is coming through GDS? voice, and then from the hotel sales efforts. So you can easily, with our dashboard, be able to look at the trends over the last 12 months and year over year and very easily see how your OTA demand shifts in certain seasons. It's a fairly easy picture to be able to identify those trends and then plan against that when you're looking at your strategy three, six, nine months down the road. What's the typical size of the company that can best benefit from Cogwheel Analytics? The platform is made for enterprise level. It's designed for companies that have 20 or more hotels in their portfolio. If you happen to oversee 20, 50, 100 hotels, you can apply where your quote-unquote problem children are and then spend time digging deeper into those individual hotels. We like to make sure that our listeners come away from each and every episode of Top Floor with some specific, practical, tangible tips, ideas, suggestions to try either in their businesses or in their personal lives. So what I want to know is how you choose destinations and put together itineraries. And I think I want to know this because I'm interested if it's the same or different from how you do it in your personal life. It is 1000% different than how I do it in my personal life. Um, my personal life, I think I kind of just pick a place and go. Where <laughs> when you're the person in charge of and putting together the tour for other people, you have to know a lot more about the ins and outs and details of all of the things. So it's super important to be on top of everything and really be able to answer any question that comes up as a tour provider, where in my personal life, because I've traveled so much, I just kind of take it as it comes. Um, as long as you know I've vetted the safety of where I'm staying and some of the tours that I'm doing. I think the only thing that's synonymous between both my personal life and now Cherish is in my personal life as well. I try to walk the walk and support women in business around the world or support locally. I tend to stray away from doing large corporatized travel anymore. Uh, but I have always said for anyone listening that it's more about the balance in your life and less 
about doing it perfectly. I still go on cruises. I, my mom loves cruises. So it's not like I'm not going to go on a cruise anymore. Um, it's all about that balance. Do a little bit of that. And then on your next trip, pick something that maybe supports more locally. Uh, and that doesn't directly answer your question about how I pick itineraries or destinations. But really, I think my best advice, if you're planning your own personal itinerary, is to start with a priority list rather than doing it hour by hour, day by day. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. Thank you. So I think it gives people a lot more flexibility, but then still makes things on your list feel accomplishable. And like if you went to Paris, you didn't miss the Eiffel Tower or the Louvre or getting a croissant at the best bakery. You have those things on your priority list and then everything else can kind of fill in from there rather than it having to be as structured as it would be in a tour. Understood. All of the women on our Alaska trip that you put together got along so well. And I know because we distinctly talk about this, we all felt really lucky like, oh my gosh, this could have gone haywire, but we all really hit it off. We had great bonds. Like we felt like we were all best friends and you know what I mean? And what I think is even more amazing is there was a huge age range. Like I think the youngest person was 21 and the oldest person was maybe 60-ish. It didn't feel strange at all. What is the secret to that? What is the secret to putting a group of strangers together who will gel like that? Or do you have to kill me if you tell me the secret? <laughs> I don't have to kill you. Okay, um, good. It, this secret, honestly, is just, I think, specific to Cherish. It's the balance that exists in our itineraries between full group activities, smaller group activities, and then downtime for yourself. When you're together with people for 12 hours a day, all day long, nonstop, you can get pretty tired of one another. So creating that balance definitely is part of that secret sauce. But I think really outside of that, the secret sauce comes from the way women interact with one another when they're removed from their routines. Because then there's no thought process of who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to show up as or anything like that. So you can show up as your most authentic self and in a way that radiates joy and happiness through your own being, but also onto others. So while it may seem like you were the luckiest people in the world to have this great group. It, I, you definitely were because I'm so glad you had an amazing experience. But Cherish has had that opportunity in all of our trips. Every group, no matter what walk of life the women come from or what age they are, seem to jive so well. And it's just an amazingly beautiful thing that creating this space through travel really unfolds. I wonder also, as you were talking, I was thinking about this. I wonder if there's not something to the idea that this type of travel, like this type of trip, only attracts cool people. 
<laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, like a jackass yeah. isn't going to want to go on this trip. Like they're going to want to stay home and write, you know, nasty emails or whatever, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. I think there's a lot of validity in that too. If I go to the very beginning of my business when I was trying to th- think about like logistically how I wanted to handle signups, I originally wanted there to be some type of application process for people to come on the trip. And that's my very type A version of myself showing up through that space. And I kind of took a step back and realized I didn't want to have that type of control because it makes people off the back feel, Ooh, am I good enough? Do I fit in here? Will I make it in? All of these different things, which is not leading with positivity and welcomeness and a safe space for all women. So I got rid of the idea of having any type of formal application process to be able to go on the trips. Instead, I leaned into what you just said, which is that really women who want this type of experience are cool and really will show up in the way that I hope people will for the trips and will create that space together because they want it for themselves. You are someone who has done a ton of solo travel. And I'm curious if you have a couple of suggestions about someone who... And the someone is me, okay? (laughs) I do a little bit of solo travel, but I find myself feeling one of two ways, either guilty that I'm not doing enough in the destination or like exhausted and stressed out because I'm doing too much in the destination. I guess what I'm trying to figure out is what tips do you have for making the most of a solo trip without like running yourself ragged? Yes, that is a great question because I would agree with you that it's hard to find that middle ground of that balance that exists between feeling like, did I spend enough time here? Did I do enough? And holy crap, I burnt myself out on this vacation and need a vacation from my vacation. I think that for the most part, it's about setting your expectations before you go rather than during or after because that will always lead to disappointment. And while I say expectations, I would also say that they need to be flexible because with travel, things change and you can never really predict exactly what's going to happen. So you kind of have to have some more fluidity in what your experience is going to be. And I guess I mean by that, that you might have thought you were going to wait an hour for your rental car and it ends up being longer than that. So you miss your appointment for whatever, if you're doing this hour by hour thing. So it's all about being flexible and kind of moving with travel. And again, I circle back to the priority list of like, here are the things I have to see. And then everything else is kind of second running. And if it doesn't happen, I can come back. The mentality that I've shifted to in my own solo travels is I can always come back if I want to. It's not, let's see all of Europe in only two weeks because (laughs) that's impossible. (laughs) So it's really about just 
slowing down a little bit and not feeling guilty about how you want to spend your time and your own energy levels. My my own solo travel experience, I brought a book with me and I spent a lot... I brought more than one book with me, let's be honest. I spent a lot of time reading in parks and at a bar and at different things because that's what my energy level wanted to do. And that's okay. You're reading a book in freaking Ireland. Like that's fun and that's exciting. And you don't have to do it the way that everybody on the internet shows you is the way to travel. It's for you. I love that. That makes a lot of sense. We have reached the fortune telling portion of the show. So now's the time to predict the future, maybe cast a spell or two. We'll come back later and see how accurate you were. (laughs) What is a prediction that you have about sustainability in tourism? So sustainability in tourism is really interesting and so multifaceted. I think that what we're going to see into the future is a lot more government involvement in sustainability and tourism for their destinations, creating ways that things can give back to the community, creating regulations, different things like that. For example, the UK as a whole, even for, I believe, 2024 and moving forward is going to be charging an entrance fee for international guests coming to their country. So there's things like that happening around the world. Hawaii was kind of on the forefront of it after the pandemic, putting caps on how many people can go see like the Nepali coast or different things like that. So it's coming top down so that as tourism continues to explode and rise, that they're creating not only environmental sustainability, but economical sustainability for their country, city, or state, or destination as a whole. If you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about packing for a trip, what would it be? Laundry. (laughs) (laughs) No, let's be honest. I think that... Um, For me, as someone who travels so frequently, I have gotten pretty good at being a light packer. And I'm still putting together what's called a travel capsule wardrobe, meaning it's probably about 15 items or less that are pretty interchangeable with one another so that I can create multiple outfits out of it. But it's still able to have me pack in a carry-on for almost any trip, no matter what the length of that trip is. And I'm really great at that, like 10 out of 10 for warm destinations, but I am probably still a five or six out of 10 for any cold weather destinations. So if anyone out there is an expert on how to pack light for cold weather destinations, I would love to know more because it gets difficult when clothes get bigger and bulkier. It's absolutely true. In fact, after I got back from Alaska, I borrowed my husband's um, Patagonia coat that folds up into a little ball. And mm-hmm. it wasn't a super fit, but I also wasn't expecting that I would need to use it as much. I just kind of had it as a backup. I ended up wearing it every single day. As soon as I got home, I'm like, patagonia.com. Let me order yeah. one of these for myself because of the, it gets such a little tiny size, man. It's the perfect thing for packing. We need clothes 
that all do that, that all fold up into a little tiny pouch and can fit into your suitcase, but then still keep you really warm. I'm on board. Let's start a second company for each of us doing that right now. Perfect. What is next for you and for your company aside from starting this other business with me, which we're going to do soon? (laughs) Yeah. So Cherish is scaling. We are growing and it's really exciting. So kind of in the past, but also looking into the future, I hired two travel guides at the end of last year to support Cherish in offering more tours into the future. So that was kind of the precursor for what's coming next in us being able to offer more tours for more women throughout the year. Next year, I'm looking at the possibility of being able to host the glamping trip that we have more than once and even potentially offering Costa Rica for more than just one set of dates. So the calendar is constantly changing. I'm adapting to what our travelers want and where they want to keep going back to. So upcoming is just being able to offer more of these tours into newer destinations as well. We're adding Turkey next year, as well as a safari to Tanzania. And I'm also super excited because we now have the ability to offer private tours for groups of six women or more. So if you and your six friends or you and your mom, sister, cousins, aunts, whoever, or even if you're in a networking group or a yoga club or anything, we're able to offer a private tour experience for women to the destinations that Cherish has already been to. So we have a repertoire that we can support you in having a group experience of your own. Oh my gosh, I cannot recommend that more. Do it ASAP. Okay, folks, before we tell Megan goodbye, we are going to head down to the loading dock where all of the best stories get told. Going down. Megan, what is a story you would only tell me on the loading dock? My loading dock story is about Panama and the trip that I took there in January of this year. I found this really incredible company that does work for Indigenous women in Panama. And I didn't fully know what to expect when I went to source this company. I was just like, oh, it's great. Like they support women on the ground. You know, we must be buying handicrafts from them, whatever it is. And I show up and I learned that this organization has been working for years to support Indigenous women basically break the damn patriarchy in their own communities. Wow. If you go... So if you go into the roots of the cultural experience, there's a lot of women who are married to husbands that have more than one wife. They've been taught their whole life that they're supposed to bear children. All of these very traditional roles where they do have some things throughout their culture that really lift them up as like powerhouses. Like uh, there's something called rainforest chemistry where they are the ones who know about the medicinal uses of plants and share that through generations of women. 
But this organization has taken it one step further and actually sent a group of women from this community across the world to New Delhi in order to train them in being solar panel engineers. So now you have 10 women from this community that learned how to be solar panel engineers and are the only ones in their community that know how to do it. And so they're building their community on to the next level because of their knowledge, which is a great way for from the inside for them to break down the patriarchy that exists kind of within their, their communities. And she plans to keep doing this. And women who are interested can go back to this amazing training center in New Delhi to learn to be welders and different applicable uh, other talents to support their communities in a way that actually makes sense for them instead of only training them up in selling smaller handicrafts or things like that. So it's, it's a really beautiful story and it's something that I think will create ripple effects uh, once the community starts seeing effects of it. How does that organization intersect with the tour? So we actually get to visit them. So it's really unique with uh, Cherish. Our trip to Panama, we have the opportunity to meet with up to three indigenous communities. And I say up to because women get to choose and pick what they prefer to do throughout their trip. So if you choose to do all three, you will get to meet all three. Uh, And one of the indigenous communities we get to meet with is the rainforest chemistry women who will take us on a hike and show us all these incredible medicinal purposes of these plants throughout their home. And they make us lunch and it's just awesome. And so the tour guide that we have on the ground locally for uh, the Panama trip, she's actually the executive director of the organization who supports the women in the indigenous communities. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Megan Grant, thank you so much for being here. I know that our listeners had their wanderlust activated and are ready to travel. And I really appreciate you riding up to the top floor. Heck yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. I am wrapping up this interview within an interview with Stephanie Smith. CEO of Cogwheel Marketing. Stephanie, I want to know what your customers are saying. How are they reacting to Cogwheel Analytics? The users of our platform tend to be people that are already doing digital marketing, but also people that are in the sales and revenue management field that want to take a full commercial strategy approach. The feedback is, what a time saver. We have management companies that we've supported on the agency side that we're spending up to one week out of the month just doing ownership reports. So as painful as that is, how can we ease the pressure for them on a report side? Number two, it's speed of getting the data. We've built best in class with our servers so that we're pulling large amounts of data in a very small amount of time. Where we want to go is helping be that star report and that benchmark for the industry. So once we're aggregating larger sets of data that we can really establish the best practices on the branded hotel side to be able to say, this is what the expectations are and be able to say, is this good, bad, a total scorecard for your total online presence. I love that. So you're going to have data at such scale that you can truly set some benchmarks for hotel properties. Exactly, Susan. Took the words right out of my mouth. (laughs) What's the best way for someone who's interested to get a demo of Cogwheel Analytics? We certainly invite anybody that's coming to Toronto this summer for the HSMAI 
and high tech conferences, we will have a booth at high tech. So we welcome anyone to come by and demo either Coggle Analytics or talk to us about agency services. Otherwise, feel free to visit our website at cogwellmarketing.com and we can walk you through what the visualizations look like. To learn more about Stephanie Smith and her company, be sure to go back to episode 19 and listen to it from start to finish. Thanks so much for listening. You can find the show notes at topfloorpodcast.com forward slash episode forward slash 94. Top Floor is produced by John Albano, who also composed and performed our elevated elevator music with vocals by Cameron Albano. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues after you leave us a five-star review. You can subscribe to Top Floor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Thanks for listening to the Top Floor Podcast at www.topfloorpodcast.com. Have a hospitality marketing question? Reach us at 850-404-9630 to be featured in a future episode. 